I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. We talk a lot in this podcast about therapy, maybe because if you make a podcast like this, uh, you should be in therapy. Or if you listen to a podcast like this, you should be in therapy, maybe because if you're a human person who has been through anything, therapy is awesome. I know anecdotally from reading a lot of your comments that I serve as an unlicensed therapist for many of you, which I'm happy to do. And I think you're happy to have me. And that's why I would like you to have your insurance send me $250 for every hour of this show you listen to. Paperwork will be in the mail soon. Partially joking, but today we are talking to a real therapist about therapy. Lori Gottlieb is a psychotherapist in Los Angeles, California. As a psychotherapist, tell me what that means. (laughs) What is a psychotherapist? A psychotherapist is somebody who helps you see yourself often in ways that we don't necessarily see ourselves out in the world. So... It really helps you understand more about your relationships and the ways that sometimes you're shooting yourself in the foot and not getting the thing that you want to get. Wow, I feel very attacked with that description. (laughs) Being a therapist means opening yourself up to absorb the problems, traumas, anxieties, and issues that other people have. Honestly, the more I describe being a therapist, the more parallels I find with this job. Anyway, it sounds hard. It sounds like a hard job to do. You know, my very first session that the person came in and she started just sobbing immediately, just crying, crying, crying. And I said the most inane thing to her, you know, after she cries for several minutes like that, and I have no idea what to say. I said, wow, it sounds like you're really depressed. (laughs) You know, can you imagine a bigger duh? But she was so relieved that somebody actually put words to what was happening. And she said, yes, I am. And nobody knew how depressed she was. As a new therapist, Lori also had a lot of ideas and training about what a therapist was supposed to be. A therapist is supposed to separate their own feelings from what's going on with the patient. And about how a therapist is supposed to act. A therapist is supposed to be human, but but also be a professional. A therapist is supposed to make sure that the boundary between their own feelings and what's going on with the patient's feelings is very clear. And that there's not a lot of overlap between how you feel personally and what you take away with you when you leave the room, you don't really have access to them 24-7 and they don't have access to you 24-7. So for example, I don't know anything about someone's life. I don't, I don't Google them. I don't look at them in social media. If someone contacts me in social media, I don't respond. And they know that coming in um, because I can't have an outside relationship with them in any way. So it's very much something that takes place in the room. The problem is that, you know, of course, we care about these people. They care about us. If you have been to therapy, you know that your therapist is not your friend. They 
Maybe they say that to you. Maybe their friend Lee, but they're not going to be like, Nora, you are the best. Call me anytime. Let's hang out. It's a bummer, but I mean, it's called boundaries. It's not like they're supposed to be cold or clinical. It's just they're professionals. You don't pay your friends to be friends with you, and you don't pay your therapist to be your friend. You pay them to be your therapist. Therapists kind of fall into the same category as teachers or your own parents, where it's hard to imagine them as human beings outside of the context in which you know them. You know, like one time I saw my high school history teacher, he was walking around Lake Harriet in South Minneapolis, and he was with his wife. And I, I said to him, what are you doing here? And who is she? And he was like, well, this is, this is my wife. And I was just so appalled. <laughs> That he that he had the audacity to be out in public. I think he was wearing shorts. I was like, I'm not ready to see your calves, sir. Um, I assumed he just sort of slept standing up in the closet on the third floor of our high school and then just emerged every morning. Anyway, um, teachers, just people who like to walk around lakes. Same as therapists. Therapists are just people, but people who have been educated you know, and and trained to do their jobs, much like teachers. Anyways, before Lori became a therapist, she worked as a writer in TV on a little-known show called ER. Stands for Emergency Room. I wasn't allowed to watch it growing up, but I snuck it in the basement and I put my ear up to the TV speaker. So I basically just... <laughs> ER was a podcast to me, is what I'm telling you. Anyway, Lori was a, a TV writer. She moved stories and plot lines along, and one day she realized that she could use those skills for something else. You know, humans tell stories. That's how we make sense of our lives. And so to help people understand their lives better by making sure that the faulty narratives that they're carrying around aren't holding them back. Um, you know, when people come in and tell me their stories, I'm not just interested in the story they're telling me, but I'm also interested in their flexibility with the story. Are they willing to look at, you know, how it might be reframed? I feel like my job as a therapist is in some way being kind of an emotional editor. Hmm. Yeah, I can't relate to that. Except, of course I can. I relate so much to that because the stories I tell myself about myself are not always uh, nice, not to myself, not to other people sometimes. I get very caught up in subplots, evildoers, basic conflict of my own life. Um, bit characters, honestly, are all of a sudden main characters. I very easily get lost in a story that exists mostly in my own head. But sometimes the story isn't just in your head and you need someone to help you sort it out. Your therapist is there to help but not get too involved. Lori is a good editor because of all the boundaries she talked about before, all the rules about what a therapist does and does not do. So how do you edit a story that you're a part of? How do you help your patient figure out a narrative that you find yourself woven into? One day, a few years ago, when Lori was still a pretty new therapist, she was at work having a normal work day for her. We have about 10 minutes, usually, between sessions. 
And then it's it's time for another person. And I get the person from the waiting room. We come into my office. Um, if it's a new person, um, you know, they kind of look around the office and they sit on the couch and um, I sit in my chair and, and we start talking. On this particular day, the new person sitting on Lori's couch was Julie. And we like to think of our therapists being just impartial vessels for our most awful thoughts. But again, they are people and they think things of us. And Lori's first impressions of Julie when she started talking. Therapy is a very, very unique experience. And it's not voyeuristic. It's not like come in here and we're going to take an x-ray of your soul. It's very much, I'm forming a relationship with this person and I care about this person. And I really liked Julie. And so when she came in, she just seemed like um, like someone that you want to hang out with. And I immediately liked her. She was an incredibly warm person. And you know how there are those people who just, when they walk into a room... They draw people toward them not because they want attention, but because whatever whatever is sort of emanating from them is something that people want to be around. That was Julie. So why was Julie in therapy? Julie had been referred to me by her physician. She had just been diagnosed with early-stage breast cancer. And she was a newlywed. She had just come back from her honeymoon. She felt like a little thing in her in her breast. She thought maybe she was pregnant because they were they'd been together for a while and they were wanting to have a baby right away. She was early 30s. You know, she was shocked by this diagnosis. But again, everybody said everything was going to be fine. You know, it was it was a very treatable cancer. She was one of these very by-the-book kind of people. She had done everything you were supposed to do. She had followed all the rules. She was, you know, on, on her track career-wise. And all of a sudden, this kind of threw her for a loop. Like, what do I do when, when you know, all of a sudden I've been derailed in this way? Okay, well, um, pause to address a question that might have popped up. Therapists aren't supposed to talk about their patients correct? Certainly not on a podcast or really anywhere to anyone. So two important things. One, Julie is not her real name. And two, Lori got permission to tell this story. Anyways, Julie's doctors had told her that her cancer was curable. So she wasn't worried about dying. She was worried about living with this plot change. She needed Lori's help editing the story, the story that was supposed to be, Julie is a professor. She worked really hard to get to that position. She just got married. It's the beginning of the rest of her life. And was now more like, what do I say in my thank you notes for my wedding gifts? Thank you for the lovely bowl. I'll use it to vomit in after chemotherapy. Julie had considered going to a therapist who specializes in patients going through cancer, but Julie had other things she wanted to talk about, too, not just cancer, her career as a college professor, her future. She didn't want to be thought of as a cancer patient, and she felt that if she went that way, that she would be seen first and foremost as a cancer patient and then as Julie. And she thought if she came to me, she would be seen as Julie who has cancer. 
So Julie and Lori made a plan that they would meet regularly, edit this story together, and get Julie through this experience. And that's what they did. One 50-minute session at a time. Our treatment plan was to help her cope with all of the the stress and the emotional, you know, hardship of how do you deal with the beginning of your marriage that way? How do you deal with the changes to your body when you have surgery like that? You know, how do you deal with, you know, the person that you just married seeing you kind of going through chemo and, and all of that? Okay, when you really think about it, how many relationships do you have in your life where you spend 50 minutes once a week or even once a month talking to someone deeply about your life? It's not, it's not a rhetorical question. I'm just asking you because I'm asking myself that. And I'm pretty sure for me, it's none. It's none people. Maybe my husband and I speak for like 15 minutes before we fall asleep sometimes. So that's the power of what Lori and Julie do. Once a week, they sit together in Lori's office and they work on the story. The version of the story that Julie never wanted to live. The weird thing about therapy is that it starts off with this notion that you're going to come in here, we're going to have this really intimate experience, and then we're going to say goodbye. And we may never see each other again. So Julie and Lori work the plan for a whole year, meet once a week, download all the feelings, sort it all out, and then they broke up. They said thank you and goodbye, just like they planned. Lori went about her life. She saw other patients. She raised her son. She went to the movies and Target and had dinner with friends. And after about six months... Lori got a message from Julie, who wanted to come in and see her right away. And she walked in the next day, and she was just ashen. And um, and she told me that not only did she have cancer, it was cancer in a different place now, but it was a rare, aggressive form of cancer, and the doctors told her it was going to kill her. We'll be right back. So we're back. Lori and Julie's relationship was started with an end in mind, knowing that the two of them would part ways just... Not like this. And Lori is Julie's therapist. She isn't Julie's friend or her sister or her college roommate, but she's a person. And Lori responds like any person would when a woman they've known for over a year and a half sits down and says, I'm dying. Well, I reacted very much like a like a human who's not a therapist, <laughs> which is which is to kind of deny it completely. Um, you know, when we hear when someone says, I'm going to die, our first reaction is, A, we want to make them feel better, and B, we don't really believe it ourselves. Like, we're still processing the information. And so, um, 
you know, it was like I wanted to say to her, oh, well, you know, those experimental treatments, they might work. I heard of somebody who, you know, but I didn't. I'm glad that you have the same reflex, though, as like a normal you know, like yes. that—that's still like you are a licensed professional, and you still have that same human instinct, which is to be like, mm, but, but I saw this thing on Doctor Oz, uh. right? Well, I, you know, I think that, you know, no matter how how much training you have, and I, I, I did have have a lot of training. You do talk a lot about death in your training and how to work with death um, in the therapy room, but it's really different when there's a real live person that you care a lot about who's coming in and saying, this thing just happened. And and because it was so new, she was just absorbing the news. And then I was absorbing the news. And so she was, you know, they told her it could be one year, it could be five years, it could be 10 years, you know, best case scenario. And how do you plan? How do you plan in that, you know, a, a year, the difference between a year and 10 years is enormous. Isn't that comforting in a way, knowing that a person who says the right things is still just a person who also sometimes says the wrong things? Because Julie's going to die. She doesn't know when, but she knows that her life is going to be abbreviated. She knows there are some things she's not going to be able to do. She and her husband very much wanted to have a baby. And given this news, they decided that they were going to try to have a baby. And so I knew from Julie that it was very hard for her when she was when she thought she was never going to have a baby and she was going to die, that, you know, going to other people's baby showers and just seeing babies, they're everywhere. When all of a sudden, when you don't have a baby, babies are everywhere. You see them in strollers, you see them in the market, you see them everywhere. And it really, it was really hard for her. Julie knows that there are some things she just can't live without having done. I hate the term bucket list. I'm sorry. I know it's popular, but I think it's because usually the people I hear say it aren't thinking about or facing their own mortality in any real or tangible way. And the people who are facing their own mortality tend to know that when you're facing down your death, it's not all about summiting mountains or jumping out of airplanes. YOLO is really just living your life. Julie wanted to live her life. She wanted to feel things. And she wanted to keep coming back to Lori. She says to me quite literally, will you stay with me until I die? And um, I hesitated because she was only going to get one shot at this. And I didn't feel like I had the experience. I didn't know if I would be able to help her without my own emotions bleeding into it. Meaning, what if I couldn't handle my own sadness? What if there were things that were, would be really helpful to her that I just didn't know about because I had never gone on this journey? I hate that word journey, but... You know, I could read up on it, but but what if what if she would do better with someone who really knew what they were doing? And the other part of it was, what if it got to be too much for me? What if the the rawness of it all, because she was very very open about everything, became too much? And so um, I hesitated. And then she said, you know, look, they have affirmations on their walls, and she just made this case about you know why it would be, you know, it would like compound 
her distress. And once she said the thing about the affirmations, and I pictured Julie in this room with the affirmations, I said, okay, yes, I will. I will be here. I will do it. I made her that promise. What does someone who is dying want out of therapy? I mean, there are some investigations that take years and can be brutal transformations to take on. When you only have a little while left, what do you want? She wanted a place that was safe, that she could go to and just talk about anything and everything. And she didn't have to worry about other people's feelings. That was part of what ended up happening, but I think what also happened was she started really reinventing herself. She started really taking all of these risks and doing all of these things that she normally wouldn't do. And I think I was there to kind of help her take these emotional leaps as well. So it it was different from just having a safe place. It was also, I want to have a place to explore these things that I'm a little, that I've always been terrified of doing but I don't want to be terrified anymore. You know, she had always been so rule-bound, and so she says, tell me if this is too crazy. She would say this about lots of little ideas that she had, and none of them were crazy. It was sort of like the goody-goody kid in high school who's like, if I have a beer, is that crazy? It's It's nuts. Right, and so, you know, all of her ideas were just, you know, like, oh, that's how normal people live. She had told me in session that she was going to get a blonde wig, And, um, you know, it was fun to see her kind of break out of her shell. So the shackles are off now that Julie realizes that she has a much more limited time on the planet than she thought she would have. There's nothing holding her back. This life that Julie wants to lead, this story she wants to tell, is hers to invent. She could stay a professor, keep going on with her life, or she can do anything— Be anyone, wear any wig she wants, spend her days pursuing what matters. But then she said that she was standing in a Trader Joe's and she was watching the cashiers. And, and, you know, this is like when they had like the little bells that they would ring and they would give balloons to the kids and stickers and stuff. And she was watching them interact with people who went through the line. And she was saying, in my work, you don't see the results for years. She loved her work, but it was very stressful about publishing and tenure and all these different things. And she said, you know, it's so tangible. It's like you have this human interaction with someone, even if it's for 10 seconds. And she said, I want that. I want to be a cashier at Trader Joe's. And her husband, her new husband, (laughs) thought she was nuts. He said, you have a limited time here. And like, don't you want to spend that time with me? Or don't you want to spend that time traveling? Or don't you want to like, what are these sort of like, what's your bucket list? What are these life dreams that you have on your bucket list? And... She said, no, I I really, really want to do this. I, oh, that resonates. That resonates fully, I feel. I have felt that while watching people fill potholes on the street. Like, wow, that looks, that looks good. So Julie applies for a weekend job at Trader Joe's so she can work her academic professor job all week and then wear a floral shirt and ring people up on the weekends. Maybe even hand chalk a sign? I don't know. And then she gets a call from her doctors. There's been 
some good news about the experimental treatment she's on. It's working better than anyone expected. And it maybe possibly could work for much longer than anyone expected. Then, that same day, another call from Trader Joe's. She got the job. So what does she do? Does she tell them, uh, there's been a misunderstanding. I, I, I don't actually need that job after all. And that was what was so interesting to me about Julie, was that it wasn't like, oh, yeah, I'm going to live so I can just like go back to my you know complacent world and not do the things that I sort of fantasize about. But she said, no, 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 I, I, I really want to do this. I didn't know what Trader Joe's she worked at. It never came up in conversation in our sessions. I had no idea. And the weird thing about running into patients out in the world is that you know so much about them, but they don't know much about you. It was a Saturday morning, and I was with my son. I see this blonde cashier, like, interacting. And she was the one, like, everyone wanted to be in her line. She was so much fun, and she was sort of, like, dancing, and she was, you know, interacting with people. And it was exactly what Julie had talked about, about why she wanted to do this. And my son, you know, is sort of, like, over there getting in that line. And I'm like, hey, come over here, you know. And she hears us, and she turns around, and I see that it's Julie. And there's a moment of just where, like, time stops, and I kind of freeze. And she looks at me. She looks at my son. My son looks at me. He looks at her. And we're all kind of looking at each other. And she's like, hey, lady, come in this line. And it's really strange as a therapist because all of a sudden I feel like it's very revealing about me, you know, sort of what I'm buying. Like patients don't see sort of what are you buying and what do you eat and what do you cook in your own home? And I'm a little bit self-conscious, oddly, about, you know, her seeing my, my groceries. Yeah, what do, you, what do you buy at Trader Joe's? What are your go-tos? I mean, it was, you know, our normal stuff, but it's it also shows that, you know, I do a, I do a lot of pre-prep, you know, I mean, oh, like yes. I get a lot of like the pre-prepared stuff. So it's I, like, I'm, I'm buying my butternut squash cubed already. I'm not losing a finger for this squash. Yeah, yeah. She's getting a glimpse of, of you know, our life together um, and what I'm like as a parent and, and. Um, You know, she's interacting with my child, which is so surreal to me that Julie is talking to my child and they're interacting. Um, And, you know, she gives him stickers and, and he's like, that lady's really nice. And I'm like, yeah, she is. She is a nice lady. Lori and her son finish checking out and head home. Lori starts unpacking all the groceries she just bought and then she notices something. Julie had written something on the receipt And she wrote a note that said, I'm pregnant. I was just, I remember, I I still, I I could go back to that moment of standing there in the kitchen and seeing her note that she was pregnant and wanting to call her and, and, you know, just congratulate her. But I couldn't because you don't, you don't do that. You, you, you wait, you know, I had to wait like five days before I was going to see her again. Julie is pregnant. It's a miracle. 
and Lori the human is so happy to hear about this miracle, standing in her kitchen, unpacking her Trader Joe's prepped veggies. This person she cares about, who she promised to be with till death do they part, is pregnant. One of her dreams is coming true. We'll be right back. And we're back. So cancer is really hard on a body, and we wanted to give you a few minutes of happiness, but Julie does not have a baby. Instead, she experiences a series of miscarriages, and eventually that dream is gone for Julie and her husband. You know, they're they're sort of like inside joke with each other was, but at least it's not cancer, you know, so they could sort of handle anything like, you know, the pipes broke in their house, but at least it's not cancer, whatever happened. It was all this perspective shift of, you know, the normal things that we get so upset about in our lives, you know, that kind of derail us. No matter what it was, they'd say, at least it's not cancer. So, um, but then she's, she, they find that, you know, she has a fibroid and they need to get the fibroid removed in her uterus. And that's when they discover that, oh, actually she has cancer again, and it's kind of everywhere. Mm. How did how did Julie tell you that? I think at that point in our relationship, it was, you know, um, we were very comfortable with each other. And we could be in silence together. Um, she could cry for a very long time in front of me. And it didn't feel like... I wasn't with her. I was very much, I didn't have to fill the, fill the gap or, or, or try to make her stop crying because I wanted to make her feel better or because I was uncomfortable with her sadness. Um, I got very used to sitting with her in her pain and her sadness and, and letting her have that experience. I didn't try to make it sound better than it was. It was just, it was a very genuine, I was so sad. And she's like, you teared up and you, you said, oh, Julie, and you were just so sad. And, and that was what she needed in that moment. Julie felt that this was an unfair situation in a lot of ways and that there was no way around it. So she and Lori kept talking Every week, sorting through everything that you plan for when you're planning your own death. We went through the process of talking about, you know, how does she want to go through this with her husband? How does she want to go through this with her parents? Her grandparents were still alive and healthy, all four of them. Some sessions were sad and some were funny, but they were all what Julie needed in that moment. Like when one day... She starts yelling, fuck, fuck, fuck. And it was just like Julie letting loose. And and then she's like, oh, God, that felt good. And then she's like, 
will you do it with me? And, you know, I'm in a suite with other therapists, and we don't have soundproofing on the walls. But, you know, what the heck, right? And so, um, because I felt the same exact way she did, and we just started yelling, fuck, fuck, fuck. And it felt so good for both of us. And then the session was over, and then I opened the door, and I let her out. And people are kind of looking at us in the hallway. Clearly, they had heard. Um, And we just smiled at each other and see you next week. What Lori is walking Julie through is grief. It's Julie grieving the life she won't have, the baby she won't give birth to, the husband who will still keep living. And her husband, Matt, is grieving too, even though Julie isn't dead yet. She's doing a lot of internet searching for, you know, is there something that could save her? Is there something? This is later on. And she goes into her husband, who's like, you know, watching TV and says, look at this thing, look at this thing on the internet. And he says, you know, he just gets, he had never gotten angry with her. He had been so patient throughout the whole thing. And he just like lost it and said, can't we just have the night, I'll look at it later, can't we just have the night off from cancer? And this is their big fight that they had this one time. And she was furious. She's like, I don't get the night off from cancer. And it was the first time As much as she was a generous person and thought so much about other people, she hadn't really thought about what her husband was going through, what it was like for him to be newly married, to have his wife dying, and, you know, what it meant for him. And, you know, she had obviously thought about it, but in that moment, it completely changed the way she thought about it. I think one of the... um, things that Julie felt most grateful for at the end was how deep her relationship became with Matt in a short period of time. Like, people can be married for a very long time and never get this deep with each other because they don't have to. Lori helped Julie talk through how she was going to approach things, what she thought was important, about how the world would continue on without her, about how to say goodbye Or maybe not say it, but do it. At one point, she wanted to kind of, like, help him find someone afterward. And they really had to talk about a a lot of, you know, what it was going to be like after. And those were the hardest conversations. How did they want to be together? And, you know, even things like when they were having sex and his body was so vibrant. He had just come back from the gym, and she was a marathon runner before all this. So, you know, she used to be the one who was, you know, more athletic than he was. And she would just look at his muscles, and, and she was sort of winded from the sex, and and she was so envious of the fact that he got to live. She was so envious of his vibrant body. And she was able to talk to him about that. And, and they had these, like, beautiful, although horrible, moments like that. And that was their way of saying goodbye. I think with her parents, you know, how do you say goodbye to your parents? How do your parents say goodbye to you? And your her sibling, her sister was like her best friend, people at work who loved her. And it was really incredible how many people there were in her life. And, and she was very, very mindful about, she didn't want like a big goodbye or like a last words or something like that. She just wanted to spend the time with them that she could in a way that was meaningful to to both of them. Meaningful meant a lot of different things, some big conversations and a lot of small moments. 
cooking together, watching Netflix. And meaningful also meant lots of planning. Julie was meticulous about planning her own death. Her body kept deteriorating, and she kept setting things up for everyone in a future she would not see. Everything was all was all done. Her, she had a party planner for her funeral. Like, she had an event planner. She did a lot of planning for the important people in her life. One of the important people in Julie's life was Lori. So, one day... She's talking about how she's really sad about leaving the people that she loves. And, and she said, I include you in the people that I love. It was this really powerful moment between us. And I didn't want to stand on professional ceremony and, you know, say something. You know, it's like, you know, like when you're in a relationship and someone says, I love you. And you're like, thank you. Um, <laughs> I, was like, I, I, I didn't want to do something like that because it would feel so disingenuous because we, you know, I did love her in the way that she loved me. Um, and so I said, I love you, too. And I've never said that to a patient that I love them. But I did with her, and I'm glad that I did. I didn't I didn't feel weird about it. I didn't regret it the moment I said it. You know, I didn't think, oh, wow, I'm going to lose my license now. Um, you know, in any other context, I, I would never have said that in, in the therapy room. But I did say, you know, I, I love you too. And it was this incredibly powerful moment between us. Julie was getting weaker. She was tired a lot. Sometimes her sessions would turn into a nap on Lori's couch. If you had asked me before this happened, what would you be doing if a patient were sleeping in front of you? I would think, well, maybe I would be thinking about, oh, gosh, my son and his math homework or, you know, (laughs) the Costco list or whatever it is. Um, But I wasn't. I was just I was just very much there with her. We just wanted to kind of be in each other's presence. Eventually, being in each other's presence meant being at Julie's house. This is another one of those things that isn't a standard therapist thing, but Julie is sick and weak, and Lori promised Julie that she'd stay with her until she died. So Lori drives over to Julie's dream house, the one that she and Matt had hoped to have kids in one day. It was exactly as I imagined it, um, but... More so, it was it was it was changed. You know, it was like she was she was now in like a hospital bed, and um, you know there was like all this sort of like cancer paraphernalia around. So you know, like just you, there's illness in the house. It was it was it was not the house that they had moved into. Matt answers the door, and Lori gets to meet him for the first time. She crosses the threshold into Julie's space the space that she's heard about for years now. And they sit together and talk. At the end, I didn't know when it... I don't think she knew. We didn't know what session was going to be the last session. And then on one visit, Julie had gotten to the point that she had set her deal-breaker for her quality of life. And she had stopped eating. 
you know, she could, she was so weak and she could barely talk. And she said, God, what I would give for a steak, what I would give for a good steak. And, <laughs> and it was just like, those were her, literally her last words to me. And, and she sort of smiled, you know, she's very weak. And, and that was everything. I can't explain why. It was just, it was so Julie. And in that moment, I was holding her hand and we were, there she was. And I'm so glad those were her last words. I think that they, they in, in all kinds of ways that I can't really articulate, encapsulated our relationship. I remember getting in the car and I drove a few blocks away and I just lost it in the car. And, you know, it wasn't unexpected in any way. Um, you know, I had been sad about it for a while, but it was that that finality. It was like there was something about the last time that I was going to see her and just the loss, the loss of never, never getting to talk to her again. A lot of therapists uh, might not go to a patient's funeral. A lot of therapists might not go into a patient's home, as I did with Julie at the end. And a lot of therapists might not yell, fuck, 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 with a patient. They might instead say, oh, I see that that was very cathartic for you. And they would acknowledge that, but they might not join in that. Lori and Julie had talked about the funeral. They'd done some of the planning in Julie's sessions, actually, and Julie had told Lori, I want you there. At my funeral. Please, please come. But there are rules. Lori can't break confidentiality, even if Julie is dead, even if Julie wants her to. Lori can't go to the funeral and say, Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Lori, Julie's therapist. So Lori has to go kind of as a fly on the wall. Not as Julie's therapist, as an anonymous mourner and observer. Seeing all of the people from Julie's sessions in living color. I think I was I was prepared and not prepared for the funeral. I knew it would be hard to hear Matt speak. I had gotten such a good sense of his personality from Julie, and I completely understood why she was head over heels in love with this guy. And when I heard him talk about her, he was exactly as she had talked about him. And one of the things that he did, because she had bequeathed him an online dating profile that he should use that would really, because he was so humble and she was worried that he wouldn't advertise himself well enough. And um, so she she wrote a profile that was just beautiful about him that she hoped that he would use parts of and make it his own, but that she said, don't be too humble because people need to know how wonderful you are. And he said, and now I have one for you, Julie, in heaven. And he wrote the most devastatingly beautiful dating profile so that she wouldn't be alone in heaven until he got there. And everybody there knew Julie as their sister, their daughter, their granddaughter, their co-worker, their best friend, you know, their running group friend, their whatever it was. When I heard all of those other stories at her funeral, I realized those are her friends. Those are her friends because they 
they actually had experiences with her. I was hearing about experiences with her, and then I was having experiences in the room with her. But I didn't have all those great, you know, stories from her childhood or stories from her work or the funny things that happened. Those were those were things that her that, you know, her living her life out in the world. And I wasn't a part of that. I really was an outsider to that. And then at the end, you know, I was trying to kind of escape. So nobody would say, like, how do you know, Julie? Or I didn't want to get into conversation with anybody. But this couple started talking to me as I was trying to make my way out. And they said, of course, well, how did you know Julie? And I I just hesitated for a second because I, I wasn't I was really expecting that I would get out without anybody asking me. And then I just said she was a friend. And I realized in that moment that I really meant it. She was a friend. Being a friend to Julie was fundamentally different for Lori than it was for Julie's other friends. Lori had a sliver of experiencing Julie's life, but also a wider view of it than most of Julie's friends, which meant that after she left the funeral and returned to the rest of her life, her grief was different as well. Grief is very solitary, and I think people who have not gone through it don't realize that until they're in it that it's such a solitary experience, that your grief is so unique to you and nobody can know your grief in the way that you do. So it is very solitary that way. What, how you experience your loss and, and what you miss and what your pain is like is going to be your own and no one else is going to feel it in exactly the same way, even people who love the person just as much as you did. The weird thing about being a therapist when somebody dies or is dying is that you can't share your grief with anyone who knew them. So everybody at the funeral, they all knew her in the outside world and could grieve together. And I couldn't talk to anybody else about her because of confidentiality. And so, you know, you grieve alone as a therapist. You really grieve by yourself. I couldn't talk to my friends about it. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't talk to anybody about it. But even in that solitary grief, Lori still has Julie. She still remembers her, still thinks of her, not just as a patient, but as a friend. I remember just, I remembered her like saying to me, will you think about me after I die? And I remember leaving there thinking, of course I will. But now even all these years later, I think about her. I still think about her. Um, and I always said to her, like, I'll think about you in the silences, and I do. I think about her, like, when I'm just, there's silence in my life, like I'm driving somewhere and I don't have the radio on, or, you know, there's just a silence. Um, she'll pop into my head, and she really, really had an impact on me.
Laura McInerney, and this has been terrible. Thanks for asking. Lori Gottlieb is a psychotherapist and also an author. Her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is out right now, and I really, really loved reading it. Our senior producer is Hans Buto. Marcel Malikibu is our assistant producer. Hannah Meacock-Ross is our project manager, and Jordan Turgeon is our content manager. You can find me online at Nora Borealis. Joffrey Wilson wrote our theme music, and we are a production of American Public Media. <laughs>